0: with AWB Contract
1: Templates. If you are comfortable allying, you're not doing it properly because it means that you are shifting spaces and places and people. It means that you're understanding that your privilege has made it a little bit easier for you to navigate or a lot of it easier. It means that you understand that there's disparate treatment happening with people who don't look like you or who do not have the same diversity characteristics as you. So you have to get uncomfortable. And that discomfort starts with learning. When you understand, oh, my goodness, this is how it is for y'all. That's the beginning.
0: Hello, hello, and welcome back to Pause on the Play. As always, it's amazing to see you here where you are reminded to examine your beliefs, question your predisposed notions, and consider realities you may be unfamiliar with in order to understand that they too are real. I am your host and conversation MC for the day, Erica Corday, here to get the dialogue going. So... I woke up today and did not feel very well. I'll be honest. I have, <laughs> I'm like, all right now. I I have work to do, and body, I need you to cooperate with me. So, there's always something good about having podcast episodes set up that are really nourishing conversations, and the one that I had today was no ex- exception. And. It did help make me feel better. I'll be honest. <laughs> I'm really excited about it. So, I talked with Paula Edgar today. She is the CEO of PGE Consulting Group LLC. And I absolutely love the fact that we were digging into not only how Black women can support each other better, but we also, you know, laid out some of the things about when imperfect allyship shows up. You know, what does this look like when black women are an ally to one another? And when non-black allies want to support us, like what you know, what can happen there? What are the things that show up to really support us in being able to give and receive this this allyship and this support? Like it was just such a full and dynamic conversation. So I'm super excited for you to listen. I'll tell you first a little bit about Paula. Paula T. Edgar Esquire is the CEO of PGE Consulting Group LLC, a firm that provides training and education solutions at the intersection of professional development and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Paula is an engaging keynote speaker and facilitator conducting live and virtual presentations for clients across industries using her Engage Your Hustle method. Paula develops customized programming and her areas of diversity expertise include unconscious bias, inclusive leadership, and allyship. Her professional development skill set includes personal branding, relationship building, and mentor sponsor best practices. Paula received her Bachelor's of Art in Anthropology from California State University, Fullerton, and her JD from the City University of New York School of Law. So, cannot wait for you to hop in, listen to this convo with Paula ahead, Hello, Paula. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thanks for having me. It is all my pleasure. I know that when Indy and I got a chance to talk with you, I immediately was like, ooh, ooh I, like <laughs> <laughs> I like her. I like her. I want to have this, have conversations with her on the podcast because when when we were talking, I, I think as a whole, we had a lot of things that we had in common as far as um obviously like the DEI pieces but also that desire to support people that look like us and so really being able to kind of go a little bit deeper into black women being an ally to one another like that felt like a very necessary conversation for us to have
1: yes agreed we had that kindred spirit thing when we connected and and I love that about connecting with black women specifically and and I it it's aligned with I think that ancestral pull that happens whenever you know folks who are like-minded and uh, like-focused connect with each other. So I'm glad we had that kismetness. <laughs> Same. I love that like like-focused. That's a thing. Love, I love it. Love.
0: So I want to start off by acknowledging that imperfect allyship is really it, it, it's just a matter of saying you know I have a platform. I have a certain amount of privilege, whatever that privilege might be. I have access. um, I have time, whatever that is, and being able to utilize that to support those that don't have the same level of access. And so with with that, from your perspectives, how does being an imperfect ally really show up in in the Black community as a whole before we even talk about Black women? Well,
1: it shows up in so many ways. I think the first thing that comes to mind is that because we are often regarded as members of underrepresented, under-resourced groups, that we feel like we have less work to do in terms of allyship. Um, mm-hmm. And so that owning and understanding that we, you know, even though systematic, you know, systemically and institutionally we uh, are often without what is perceived privilege, we do have privilege within our spaces. And that means that we have work to do. That means that we can stand up for one another um, in many ways. And, you know, I see it in, in so many, so many different places. So I'm in New York city. And the first thing that came to mind when I thought about this was sort of the, who is black and how does black show up? <laughs> um, mm. and, and especially I'm from a Caribbean family. And so my family's from Barbados and Jamaica. And it was really like, you know, we are us and they are them. And, and then, you know, my sort of understanding as I grew up that no one's really separating us out when they're <laughs> when they're deciding to discriminate or, or provide us uh, with different access and disparate treatment, and so thinking and understanding that while yes we have different experiences and we are not a monolith, that we have to connect with each other is the first thing that came to mind. Um, but but it's also that we are intersectional, right? That um, you know to the point about being black first and then you know the intersections we said at black women um, black and gay, whatever the, the intersections we are, those all provide us with an opportunity to see whether it's institutionally or it is um situationally that we do have privilege in some spaces. You know, I was I was thinking about my privilege as a mother this morning. However, depending on who you are, you might not perceive my my motherhood as a privilege, right? So all right. of those things all of those things kind of go into um the space of, of imperfect allyship and um and how it shows up in our community. All of that I 100% agree with. And
0: I think that the programming that we are kind of given to help keep us separated really is that kind of us versus them. And I think when we're able to see ourselves with a certain amount of interdependence, regardless of you know the intersectionality of our identities, it really does make a big difference in how we are not only aware of what that support is. Can and and does need to be, but also the part that we play in it, and in the giving
1: and receiving conduit of it all. So true. You know, another thing that came up from you and I was thinking about this was classism and socioeconomic um, sort of disconnects that we have within our community, and and how that has been fostered through colorism and and the, the different layers that we have, the different sort of casts that appear in order to get us essentially closer to, um, whiteness, uh, which is how white supremacy works and that we, we have kind of been given that story. And, and when we have access to understanding how it, um, separates us rather than brings us together and how, if we are not all together, <laughs> then, then we cannot win, that we cannot have, you know, justice, freedom, however you you really think about it. And A part of how white supremacy works is to separate us because that keeps us uh, not powerful. And so when I think about allyship, it's got to be that understanding our connectivity to each other and knowing that wherever we have those spaces of privilege, we have to use it to support each other. And the socioeconomic piece, I was, you know, thinking about, again, like I said, I live in New York City and there's been so much conversation right now about uh, the impact of COVID and, and understanding you know, the ability to have access to different health care and education and the ed- pieces of education that that were not fostered because of the fact that we are in communities that, you know, are looked at on one hand as very robust and, and um, affluent. And on the other hand, because we're public school funded here, not. And how those things come together, right it, it kind of it's always ruminating in my mind and thinking like if I don't provide information to folks who don't have it. Um, and I don't get information um, as someone who may not have it, then we are never going to be able to navigate outside of these frameworks that held us down. All of it,
0: (laughs) every (laughs) single piece. So with you saying that this is where I do want to drill down even more to Black women specifically, and I'm going to make sure that this includes anyone that identifies as a, a Black woman, femme. So I want intersectionality to to show up there um, as well. What is it that really drives that passion that you have for being able to not only support, but to prioritize Black women? Because we are a part of the Black community. And I think there's this additional support that is needed because so much of the support we are often supplying and we need our own reserves filled. So, I would love for you to be able to really just dig into and share, like why that prioritization is such a passion for you.
1: Whew. Um, I and am, I know that was a big question. <laughs> it, it is, and I sort of had like a, a one of those wave your hand at church moments when you were talking. I was like, <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I have come from strong women. I have been modeled strong women, song black women. My entire life, like I, without even thinking about it today, I have on my Shirley Chisholm unbossed <laughs> t shirt. And I just think about the fact that I use that, that essence, that sort of matrilineal power of blackness that fosters who I am. So I don't know who Paula is without the strength of black women. <clears throat> that being said, I particularly understand that. My passion for uplifting Black women comes from my relationship with my mother. And it comes from having lost my mother and and understanding that there's so many people who don't have the connection that my mother and I had. Um, my mother used to say, you can be the wind or you can be the leaf. And I I mean, I pretty much tap into that all the time because it's really saying good things, bad things, whatever things might happen to you. but how can how can we direct what's going to happen to us and when i think about um how this country um and our community thinks about black women we we are the ones who people go to we are go, we're the go to folks right we are, we are the ones who um hold the weight of everything on our shoulders and what i understand what i know and having been and also been the recipient of is that we don't turn that back to say how do we fill our own cups? And right? how do we make sure that together we build up the who and the what in order to make sure that we stay strong and we're not depleted? One part because the world needs us and the other part because we need ourselves. And so being modeled that Blackness and Black womanness is such a powerful thing um, and that uh, this intersection, is magic that we sit at um, is wonderful. And then understanding that No one is going to give us permission to take care of ourselves. We have to give it to ourselves. My passion has been to supply Black women with the understanding of how powerful they are, to support structures and systems in which Black women are often not made to feel powerful and to make them be powerful as much as I can. Again, using my allyship and using my privilege to do so. But, you know, thinking about the emotional piece of this, it is it's it's a mantra, it's a, you know, it's a goal, it's a vision, but it's also like a self-talk because I'm a Black woman. So um, I have to model what I want for myself. And even saying that, it feels to me like, gosh, can I believe, I can't even believe I'm here because so for such a long time, I did not feel that powerful voice, that, that ability to be able to speak up on behalf of Black women, on behalf of myself, and then to encourage and, and not just encourage, but to demand others do the same thing. So I hope I answered your question. I got a little.
0: <laughs> no, cause it was, all of it was needed. I wanted all of that. Um, and, and, and you brought up something that I think is important. We don't all have, you know, this, this amazing benefit of having Maternal guideposts mm-hmm. as 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 a part of our upbringing and you know the way that we're reared and these support structures that knowingly or unknowingly model what's possible and and, and what strength and excellence looks like outside of the uh, white supremacy patriarchal uh, fully you know steeped in that type of energy that is told to us that we're supposed to have and so. I think sometimes it can it can be a part of the process to figure out what does supporting someone that looks like me actually mean? And I would be remiss to not say like, what are one or two things that you think that you experienced that made it simpler for you that maybe it wasn't as easy for some other people that you've witnessed? Because we, we see that play out and it can be a part of the lessons for us. Oh, well, only
1: one or two. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I know, I know.
0: <laughs> I was like, that could be a whole episode.
1: <laughs> I, what immediately came up for me for that was, is that when I was very, very young, like little, I, maybe two or three, I remember my mother saying to me that I was special. And that might seem like, you know, something you're supposed to do, but I know so many people who didn't have that. I knew from when I was young that I had a power that that um was outside of me but also but also also mine. And so much so that I remember being a teenager, my mother and my father being like, Hey, we know we told you you had that power and you're magical, but you might want to tamp it down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And and, and me being like, Oh, you already let that first fly. Sorry, it's not going to happen. I had this confidence. As a young child that um, so many of us are, it's its like made to be like, you, you're not, you cannot have that. Right. And especially for Black girls and particularly for Black women um, and tapping back to think, you know, we're oftentimes looking externally for that, right? It's not given to us by the, the parenting or the family structure that we have. And so you see a lot of folks go astray because we're looking for it from someplace else. And I got it from home, from very young. Like you are all the things, don't let anybody tell you are not all the things. And it was like, oops, we told her she was the things. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> so that, that's one. And the other piece is that I um, was, was given the opportunity, the um, benefit of education, and not just education traditionally, from again a very young age, so my parents made it a big deal. Again, my father is from Barbados, my mother from, was from Jamaica, and it was not only school. It was what are you reading at home? It's my father sent for, you know back to Barbados for something called the West Indian Reader, and anybody who's West Indian is going to laugh at this, but but essentially um, like their books that uh, textbooks that they used to use, and so I was like learning about like sixteen coconuts times four. Like I was looking at these. Little <laughs> those types of things as well, and encouraged to read comic books and other pieces that are not traditionally sort of educational pieces. And we went to museums. Um, we flew kites. My father showed me how to make a kite. So all of those pieces of education that are such important to how you grow up that are not like, you know, you know this is who Martin Luther King was, which obviously is important, but but external things that made me a very well-rounded person um, and made me understand that while school is fantastic, then much of your education comes from experiential and connection and is fostered through those pipelines of love that may not be specifically thought of like, this is how I'm going to love you, but it's how you receive love from folks. I think, and and I want to be clear, part of the reason I asked
0: that is because one, I think it's important to share what, those benefits were, like like you mentioned, that we're not the stereotypical, I got this from school, or, Mm -hmm. you know, I got, I I got this talk from my mother, and this was the pivotal thing, like, both parents really supplied a number of things that contributed. But also, like you said, like, this is not what everybody gets. And this is not to point this out from a point of um, acknowledging, you know, black trauma, but to acknowledge that, This is where sometimes without some of those formative pieces being in place or having the opportunity to fill back in if they weren't there early in life, it can shift how we perceive ourselves, how we interact with others, what those relationships and those dynamics look like. And the only way that we can address it is if we language it and acknowledge it to be able to just really put the truth on it of that this wasn't always because nobody wanted to give it to me. Some mm-hmm. people can't give you what they didn't receive, or they're having a hard time trying to figure out how to provide this for you when they're reparenting
1: themselves. Oof, and That's providing. second
0: part. <laughs> that's right. second
1: part. I, I was the benefit of, of two imperfect parents who had really imperfect parents. Um, who were trying to do better for their child and children. Right. And I'm so blessed to be able to to say that because they they thought, we didn't have this. It hurt. We want to make sure that you have this. And again, it wasn't done perfectly. There were definitely things I'm sure, you know, they could have done better, but they were strategic in that. Like, we want to make sure that you have this thing. Like, you're going to learn this piece. You're not going to be um, traumatized by some of these p- pieces that we were traumatized by. Um... And it's, it's when I, you know, when I think about myself as a parent, but also myself as a mentor, I, you know, I think a part of good mentoring is, is, is parenting. And I am strategic about what did you have? You know, who lifted you up? Were you lifted up? Mm-hmm. And it being able to then try to fill in some of those pieces too, because it's never too late to love somebody. Right. It's, it's, we have to, to say I know you didn't, and I know you might not trust it, but I'm here. All I want to do is love you. Oh, my
0: gosh. That, that because so many of us have a hard time being able to give and receive Mm -hmm. specific emotions because love was not ingrained in the base. And we are also missing that trust in it because it wasn't given or it was so conditional. Oh conditional love Ooh. <laughs> and that makes it and, and and it makes it hard to not only love other people minus the conditions but to love ourselves minus
1: the conditions it, it's true because when you think about again kind of pulling back to imperfect allyship a lot of places in which i see folks who have privilege mm-hmm. is you know people who have credentials and ivy leagues and all those things but they have Often, you know, I, in much of the conversations I have, you know, again, I'm a, I'm a lawyer, um, is around folks who receive conditional love. I love you if you get these good grades. I love you if you get into this. school. Really? I love you more if you have this framework and then feel so afraid to be who they actually are outside of those credentials, outside of that framework that which that love was freely given in to just be who they are. And I mean, that's a place where we can do better with each other. I'm going to agree 100%.
0: We can't talk around topics. We must use language to call it what it is, no matter how palatable or not so palatable it might be. And in order to get to that point, you want to be in alignment with what matters to you and why. Being clear on this means you can chart a course that prioritizes your values and the impact they can create. Leading through your values means being explicit about what you support and how your actions are aligned with that. Every person you hire, every business you buy from brings you closer to or farther away from your values. These are the decisions that ultimately shape your company culture. If you want to learn more and sign up today, visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit so that you can sign up for your implicit to explicit masterclass with Indy and I today. I think if you grew up with, um, let's say anywhere in like that, like probably late 60s, early 70s, up until, you know, mid to late 80s, especially there was a lot of conditioning around kind of this almost trying to put you in a place of like, let's be uh, examples of black exceptionalism, because this might be
1: the only way we know how to win. Yeah. The direct, you know, kind of product of white supremacy, like if we show up in the most perfect self, then they can't treat us the way they have been treating us, right? Then they can't make us feel as if we are less than because we have excelled beyond belief, right? And I think about the fact that today is the beginning of the confirmation hearings for Katanji Jackson, and she is an example of Black exceptionalism. She has hit every single mark. And yet we are preparing ourselves. Our breaths are collectively held. Right. To see what they're going to come at her with. Yes. To be like, well, you took, you know, peanut butter and jelly for lunch one. That's <laughs> right. And, and, and peanuts were not allowed. Like, like whatever foolishness they're going to come with. Knowing that she's done everything that she needed to do to get to this space and still not trusting that they are going to do what they are supposed to do. Because we have often seen it work out that way, right? That that trust comes from us seeing that no matter what, even if we show those' places in the way that they say they want us, white supremacy still says you're not enough. Hoochow, that, <laughs>
0: that, and that's exactly right. It's like I have, I have crossed every T and dotted every I three times, and still, mm-hmm. the melanin in my skin already has has discounted me from even being able to be on this list. And so that in itself is is a thing. And that is that actually is the 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 perfect segue into the other thing that came to mind for me that I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, I think it's important that we figure out how to support one another. And that starts with supporting ourselves. There's no question in that. That's a that is a period point blank hard stop. Mm-hmm. And comma. I think that there are also people that easily and freely exist in sp- in spaces that we um, don't have that same privilege quite now. And so when there are imperfect allies that are non-Black that want to support Black women, what are the tangible things that you think they can or or could do and or just simply what what would you say of like let me let me sit you down for a minute let's talk about
1: this <laughs> um I start with allyship as a journey it's not a destination you're never gonna one day be like I'm an ally done check yes I say this all the time I'm like please y'all please <laughs> yes it's I make the analogy often with the EI work that it's similar to going to the gym like if I went to the gym one time and I was skinny, cha, I would never go back. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> That would be enough. That one push up on that one machine would be good enough. Right. In order to maintain the state that I want to be in, I have to continue to work at it. And sometimes it's harder and other times it's easier, but I have to keep going and I have to keep on understanding and learning myself at new stages of how I'm going to ally and how I'm going to work out, right? It, it, it's to me mm-hmm. the perfect analogy. And so I would start with, Uh, folks who want to support Black women is to self-educate. There's too much assumptions and presumptions that because of pop culture, you know the experience of Black of Black women. You don't. Because you have a one good friend who's a Black woman that doesn't give you insight into the experience of all Black women. And so immerse yourself like you would do with anything else you wanted to understand better. Read, watch, listen. Um, And I'm going to put a a highlight and exclamation point on the listen. Take the opportunity to listen to Black women. And it sounds sort of this very like, oh, it's kind of out there. And no, I actually mean it. Oftentimes I'm in conversation with folks who are so well-meaning. Oh, my favorite thing is good intent. However, the impact has to be that in order to get to that place of being on the path of allyship, you have to listen. You have to hear what is needed. You have to hear the experiences. Um, and unfortunately, the place of being in the majority spaces and, and being so used to hearing yourself means that you often, and that you are making collective, and of course I'm being stereotypical here, but bear with me, is that you're not listening. You're trying to listen for insertion of your own opinion. And that's how white supremacy gets all of us. A trick that I tell allies, and particularly I tell white men this, is to put your hands underneath your bottom, your bottom or under your thighs. Because oftentimes we speak with our hands. Or we want to, to talk and, and punctuate with our hands. Actually physically restrain yourself. And when it's time and you really have to talk, write down what you're going to say. Put down two or three things and then still wait. Make it uncomfortable so that you'll realize that you're in the space of not being able to do what you would normally do. Number one, I ask them to do that because it, it, it's a connection to empathy because often that's the space in which Black women are in. Number two, it's a good strategy to force yourself to not take up space, which male-meaning allies often try to do. And, and well, they often do, even if they're not trying to. And three, it makes you understand that you don't have to be the voice all the time. And, and in fact, other voices should be heard and amplified. And it gets you into a better um, way of being, again, you will always, for the most part, have the opportunity to then uplift your voice and it it not be a challenge. But if you understand that that experience of of being tamped down and not being able to have your voice heard is one that is is heard by marginalized and, and underrepresented and under-resourced groups all the time, and in particular here black women, two, get into the practice of waiting and hearing, listening better, getting that listening skill. And then three, hearing thoughtfully, hearing Empathetically, hearing inclusively, right, is a skill that makes you a better person, and it makes you a better ally. So, it it, it's, it sounds very like oh my gosh, yes, of course I can just listen, but it's hard. Uh, oftentimes you know. in the coaching that I do uh, with white men and women leaders, that is the hardest part. But, but 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 and I say I get it. Try it. Try it for five minutes in a the meeting, then try it for ten. Get into the point where you can say nothing in the whole meeting and still feel fast, feels, feel whole because you have allowed the meeting to happen. Your presence is still there, but oftentimes your voice overshadows everybody else and is listened to so much easier because of the way that we have been systematically brought up um, to hear voices that are white, more, easier, faster. So, yeah. All of that. that. <laughs> All of that. Because, yes, Um
0: anything I think around coaching that really does hone in on the active listening versus listening to respond or to insert yourself or to have an answer. I do feel like that is such a very challenging thing for anyone to do, let alone when you are then talking about this from a space of someone that is, (sighs) conditioned to feel as though their voice carries more weight than everybody else's whether they realize it or not and to be like hey hold it okay that's a very challenging space to be in but I think it's a necessary space if we're going to explore what does it look like uh, tangibly from an actionable standpoint to uh, redistribute spaces for people to be able to comfortably take up space and exist and to navigate on their own terms.
1: Yeah. And you, you learn so much when you do this too. So oftentimes it feels like something's being taken away, but in fact you're actually gaining, you know, um, you're gaining so much from the experience because we, you know, we have, we're interacting in spaces where people are used to, to your point of being heard and and um, having access when they have to put themselves in a position of not not even uh, the first thing came to mind was being less than, but it's not. It's, it's being submissive. Well, right? I'm going to
0: pause you on that. Let's talk about that for a minute, because we are made to feel lesser than. And so that pushback does come up of like, oh, you know, does she want me to feel lesser than in this? Mm-hmm. And to me, that says, OK, well. Is that you acknowledging that I am conditioned to think that I'm lesser than mm. like, are we now coming to terms with what that is? If you now have to acknowledge that you feel like doing yeah. something that shifts your positioning yeah. then invokes a feeling of lesser than like,
1: okay, let's talk about right. <laughs> I'm like, the window. It's a grid window into it. Right. And I think the irony of the fact that what brought up, came up for me was that even in doing that, oftentimes it's not that they feel less than. It feels like they, you know, they feel restrained, but not less than. But the 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 exercise is being done to show you a little bit of how of the experience of feeling less than, of also being restrained, of all those other pieces that uh, Black women are are constantly experiencing in in spaces. Um, yeah. This is this is like how do we navigate trauma? That is consistently being levied at in small and sometimes big doses. <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, when I am in spaces with people and um, I'm spoken over, it 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 feels like I'm being stabbed. Like it 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 physically pains me. Not just because I know I have something to say, but because I, you know it's like, what are you doing? I'm here because I'm supposed to add value. I'm here because I deserve to be here, and you're not letting me. And then. You know, because I would not would. I am assertive, right? Then mm-hmm. it's like, well, how do you try to take up space here when that's not what you're supposed to be doing? you're supposed to just you know fall in line and accept this as it is. And then when you do do that, then it's off. see how she is. You see how Paula is. She's aggressive. And that's why we couldn't give her this thing because she won't even, you know fall in line. <laughs> it's Like, well, how do I win? Where, where's the where's the place where I go to win? Can you let me know how? I What's the code? Because I need to punch that one in. Um, and I acknowledge it and I understand it because I'm in rooms navigating this. But for folks who are not, that's really where I think about how I can help to voice it. I I, I encourage people to say, you know, pick pick your favorite person. <laughs> and in this sense, pick your favorite Black woman. But usually in places I'm at, there's only one or two. So pick the one that you like the best. In your mind, think about them. I, I do system that things all the time where I say, think about them. You don't have to say it out loud, don't write it down. Who is it? What can you do to shift this person's experience in the workplace? What can you do to provide some of the access, the power, privilege, to amplify their name and their experience? And, you know, folks will often ask me, well, how do I, you know, how do I even do that? What are you talking about? Literally think, what is my sphere of influence? And within that sphere of influence, what can I give? What can I show? What experiences can I levy for this person to change hers? Mm -hmm. And that questioning is not something that comes up often, right? Because we think about our affinity, right? It's easier for us to connect with people who are like us. Like, I'm going to do this for this person because they're like me, whether I'm saying it actively or not. And if they're not, then well, I wouldn't come to my mind and be like, oh, well, you know, why don't you come with me to this event? Why don't you, you know, I don't know, speak up at this meeting? But right. it's those things that shift. You know, people are saying, oh, all these things, like they, they happen so slowly and the numbers aren't changing. So the numbers start with the person. Personify the data to make it personal, the work that you do, and then it becomes institutional and then it becomes systemic. We have to continue to move on. We can't be like, oh, well, you know, it's only move point two. That point too is probably fifty people. Those fifty people's experience makes a difference.
0: Well, um, and we also have to be real of not only acknowledging change through quantifiable exactly, metrics. Exactly, exactly. So I'm a. You already know I could talk about this for hours. Yes. However, <laughs> I'm a. I'm a. I'm a respect everybody's time, <laughs> including yours. And before we wrap up. Is, and you've already given a number, uh, so feel free to reiterate one if you feel so inclined. But if you were to give the listeners one action to take after listening to our conversation, one action that would create change and impact, what would that be? Commit to getting uncomfortable.
1: Ooh, I like it. My therapist, who we should all love and revere, <laughs> she, said, <laughs> she says, Growth begins where comfort ends. Growth begins where comfort ends. And I tap into that every single day because often I'm uncomfortable. But for allyship, you have to be uncomfortable. If you are comfortable allying, you're not doing it properly, right? Because it means that you are shifting spaces and places and people. It means that you're understanding that your privilege has made it a little bit easier for you to navigate or a lot a bit easier. It means that you understand that there's disparate treatment happening with people who don't look like you or who do not have the same diversity characteristics as you. So you have to get uncomfortable and that discomfort starts with learning. When you understand, oh my goodness, this is how it is for y'all, that's the beginning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is the beginning. And then it's, you know, okay, I see, I have my cape hanging up in the closet. Um, What am I gonna do with that cape, <laughs> right? right? Am I right. gonna put it on and just look cute? on social? Or am I going to do something with this information that I now have that I don't like, that I want to change and do something about what am I going to do? And no matter what your answer is, the next thing should mean that you are committing to discomfort. Facts. All of that. Oh my gosh,
0: Paula, thank you so, so, so much for being here because everything that you gave, you talk about the church wave, girl. <laughs> <laughs> all of it all of that so if the listeners want to learn more about you and interact with you where can they find you
1: they should go to my newly revamped website which is Paulaedgar.com uh, I poured myself into it um, so that you are getting the uh the whole Paula and go to the about Paula page it's the first place that you should, should hang out at and you'll learn about me and also connect with me on social media I'm on every platform Um LinkedIn and Twitter are my favorite at Paula Edgar is where you can find me.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for everything that you do, just being you and for being here with me today,
1: Paula. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation and I love the impact that you're having. Thank you. I told you this conversation was (laughs) was so
0: good. And When we have these points that we are talking through things and it kind of hits your spirit of like, ooh, that, that to me is always the indicator that this conversation is powerful. This is the thing that needed to be talked about. This is what needed to be shared. And I absolutely loved being able to have that conversation with Paula to introduce you to this amazing woman and what she does and just reminding you of, The fact that imperfect allyship is not always about supporting people that don't look, live, or love like you. Sometimes it's supporting people that do look, live, or love like you because maybe that access isn't always there. And if you have that privilege, you want to contribute to them being able to have equity in that way. And that's why Black women are so pivotal In really needing to support one another. And we're not the only community that this shows up in. I think it shows up in any community that does not have, let's say, a quote unquote equal stake. We all can work on being better and perfect allies to one another and at the same time figuring out how to be better humans. So as we wrap up, I also want to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the stolen land of the Susquehannock, Piscataway, and people that are native to this area known as Maryland. People think they know what to expect, but they haven't met you yet. Biweekly, India Jackson, co founder of Pause on the Play, has conversations exploring branding and visibility. Own your values and amplify your influence by giving the Flaunt Your Fire podcast a follow today. And you know that we love being able to show up here, having real conversations, normalizing the challenging things and making them a part of your everyday exchanges. This is how we purposefully remove stigma and create real change and connection. Together, we cross lines and we recreate boundaries in order to support and not separate. Together, we can continue getting more people to drop the veil so that they can challenge their thoughts, feelings, and actions. So if you are choosing to be here, taking in this conversation and being a part of the change that you want to see, I thank you. So until the next time, keep the dialogue going. Bye. I'm ready to get clear on what matters. Let's do this. And then sharing this information across your team explicitly. This is what creates confidence and integrity in what it is that you are creating and sharing with the world. Visit pauseontheplay.com forward slash explicit to learn more about this collaborative and interactive workshop and sign up today. Ready to lead through your values?